Okay, great. Okay, tonight's class, <coughs> the Parsha from this past Shabbat is Naso. And in the in the Parsha Naso, it talks about three categories, mainly stressing the two categories. Let me see here. What's going on with this whiteboard that I don't have some of these? Uh, Huh. All right. Mainly we have the two categories of the Sota and the Nazir talked about in Parshat Naso. And so I'm going to just um, start with this. It's in the book of Numbers. And we're going to actually be starting with chapter 5 and stressing mainly chapter 5. Now, there were three categories of law that correspond with the three camps of the tabernacle. <coughs> Camp of Israel, which are the tribes around the tabernacle. The Camp of Levi, which are the inner, it's the inner camps between the tabernacle and the tribes. And then the Camp of the Divine Presence, which is the tabernacle itself. And these correspond with these three categories of law that involve a person being sent out or sent away because of something that had happened to them. The first category, of course, is called Gazel Hager, which is um, translated as laws pertaining to the breach of trust for which no restitution can be made to the wronged party because he died and has no legal heirs since he was a proselyte. So this is something that would happen with uh, the person who was a proselyte and he has been wronged in some way financially, but he has died and there's no way to make restitution. And so this corresponds to the camp of Israel who are all told be um, compassionate to the gear and it corresponds with the laws of the leper being sent away. And then the laws of the Sota. Well, let me just go through this right quick. And then we're going to get a little bit more specific. There are three categories of law. Namely, Gazelle Hager, laws pertaining to the breach of trust for which no restitution can be made to the wrong party because he has died and has no legal heirs since he was a proselyte. Sota, the laws pertaining to the wife suspected of adultery, and Nazir, laws pertaining to the Nazarite, the Nazir. All these laws are closely linked to the three spheres of Jewish nationhood, Israel, Levi, and the dwelling place of the presence. Now this is the part of the tabernacle into which only the Kohanim could go into. So it's the three... Uh, the three sections of Jewish life is Israel, Levi, and um, Kohanim, the priesthood. So, the ones that correspond with the, as we said, Gazel Hager, are the laws of the lepers being sent away. The one that corresponds with Sota in the camp of Levi are the laws concerning one who's suffering from a genital discharge and he would be excluded as being able to do his duties as a lady because of it. 
And then the Nazir is in the camp of the Divine Presence. This is going to be something that corresponds with only the Kohanim because they could not do that, perform their duties if they had had contact with the dead. And so those are the, con- those are the three categories of law here. Now it's interesting when we look at this that we see that it's like we talk about the whole law, the whole section of law concerning the Sota, which is the woman who is accused of adultery. Interesting that Adam brought that up. Woman who is accused of adultery by her husband. Now, the only reason that we have all of this, and it's a little bit strange, we're going to go into that in more detail actually tomorrow night. But the only reason that a man would come and accuse his wife like this is because he wants to keep the marriage together. He suspects her of wrongdoing, but if he didn't want to keep the marriage together, he would just get a divorce. He would just divorce her. But if he wants to keep the marriage together, once he suspects her, she is not allowed to him. She's forbidden to him. So he has to bring her before Hashem. has to bring her to the priest, bring her before Hashem, in order to get a ruling. Is she guilty or not? And then, if she is not guilty, she's actually going to become pregnant and have a child. As, and it's like, um, it's like a consolation. But, like I said, we're going to go into this more in detail next, uh, tomorrow in our next class because there's a lot to say about that and it's interesting the way the Torah puts this together the way it lays it out is that right after we have all of these things about the the ceremony for the Sota and that she's been accused of wrongdoing and all this and then we have this concept of the Nazir now how many of you are familiar with the idea of Nazarite it's a word that you heard. Okay. I'm sure you have. You've heard of the story of Samson. He was a Nazarite. You've heard the story of Samuel where his mother told was told no razor should come upon his head. Yeah, it's a familiar term. But the idea of the Nazir is the only ones that we're really familiar with in these stories is the Nazir from birth. Somebody who is called to a very special mission, very special purpose that he has to keep this real close relationship with Hashem in this very extreme manner. And the vow of a Nazir is very extreme. In fact, the rabbis write about it and they, they call it the holy sinner. Because he's having to abstain from things that are part of normal Jewish life. And so he is called a holy sinner because he has to abstain. But it's not necessarily, you know, you look at it like that and you think, I don't understand why it would be called sin. Now, more often than not, a person would take the vow of Nazir for another reason he's not taking it from birth more often than not he does not take it from birth but let's just go to the actual passage and and I want to just start there 
And that is actually found in chapter 6. And God spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When anyone, a man or a woman, makes the express resolve to take the vow of a Nazir, to fulfill the task of Nazir for God, then he must fulfill his Nazirship, or Nazirut in Hebrew, abstaining from weak and strong wine. He shall not drink vinegar from weak wine or vinegar from strong wine. He shall not drink any liquid in which grapes were steeped. He shall not eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his Nazirship he shall not eat anything prepared from wine producing grapevine from its seeds to its skin. All the days of his Nazir vow no razor shall come upon his head until the days are completed in which he took upon himself to fulfill the task of Nazirship for God. It, his head, shall be holy to holy in that he shall allow the hair of his head to grow free all the days of his Nazir task to be fulfilled for God he must come near to the person of one he must not come near to the person of one who has died not even with regard to his father and mother his brother and sister even with regard to these he must not defile himself when they have died because the circlet of God is upon his head all the days of his nazirship he is holy to God and if someone dies very suddenly beside him this deprives his nazir head of its purity he shall shave his head on the day he regains his purity on the seventh day he shall shave it and on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of the meeting the priest shall offer the one as an offering that clears him who brings it of sin and the other as an ascent offering he shall effect atonement for him for that which he sinned concerning the person and he shall hallow his head again on that day now you notice here where it talks about the circlet on his head of holiness Yes, a woman also shakes her head because the hair is then offered as a sacrifice. Um, he shall then fulfill for God the Nazir task during the days of his Nazirship, but he shall bring a sheep in its first year as a guilt offering. The previous days become void because his Nazirship has lost its purity. But this is the teaching concerning the Nazir. On the day when his Nazir days are completed, he shall take himself to the tent of the appointed meeting, and he shall bring near his offering to God, one sheep in its first year without blemish for an ascent offering, one female sheep in its first year without blemish for an offering that clears him who brings it of sin, and one ram without blemish for a peace offering, and one basket of matzot for a fine wheat flour, cakes mixed with oil, thin brushed, thin matzot brushed with oil, and their homage offerings and libations. And the priest shall bring it near to God, and shall make his offering, that clears him who brings it of sin, and his ascent offering, and he shall make the ram for a meal offering, to God for the basket of matzot and the priest 
shall make his homage offering and his libation. And the Nazir shall shave his Nazir head at the opened tent of appointed meeting, and he shall take the hair from his Nazir head and place it upon the fire that is underneath the meal of peace. The priest shall then take the cooked foreleg of the ram and one matzah cake from the basket, one thin matzah, and then place it upon the hands of the Nazir after he has shaved his Nazir head, and the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before God as a holy thing. It is the priest along with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh in the uplifted offering donation. After that the Nazir may drink wine. This is the teaching concerning the Nazir who vowed his offering to God for his Nazirship. In addition to anything that his means make possible according to his vow which he has vowed Thus shall he do in addition to what is prescribed for his Nazirship. Now, when we talk about the end of the vow, this is a different category from the person who was Nazir from birth. Now, let's first of all, let's just talk about this. Why do you think a person, and from what I'm reading, from what I understand, and there is a whole tractate in Talmud called Nazir, and from what I understand about the Nazir, I don't see in here that it could be anybody but a person, who, a Jewish person, a person of Israel. I could be wrong, but I don't see it here. Um, so, but I still think that it's important for us to study about it here. The idea about the Nazir who takes the vow for a limited period of time is what we're talking about right now is that he would have some kind of sin something that is really really hard for him to overcome and this is one of the reasons why you could see it placed right after in the Torah right after we read about the Sota the Sota the woman is for some reason something has happened where she has been suspected of immodesty she's been in, in, suspected of possible impurity that caused her husband to accuse her now he has to be a pure person himself in order for all of this to work if he is messing around he can't come with his wife to the priest and say, I think she is guilty of messing around. Because he's guilty. He has to really be pure in order to accuse her. Or the formula that you read here about the Sota won't work. Then right on the heels of that, we, we read this whole chapter about the Nazir. So this is why the rabbis say that it's not an accident that we have one right after the other and the Nazir is somebody who maybe he's having a hard time with a certain kind of sin he's having a hard time with temptation in certain areas sensual areas and so that's what we get the hint of what we get about why it's the Sota and then the, it's the Nazir so he comes and he makes this vow, which is a very difficult thing to do. He makes this vow to keep 
a very stringent type of lifestyle to keep away from things that are normal for Jewish life, you know, wine, for kiddush, and so on. He can't partake of that. And if you stop and you think about it, I mean, a person who a lot of times when people are are have a problem and so on, the last place they need to be is where people are drinking and maybe get drunk. Because this is this is a real way for people's um, defenses to come down and for their inhibitions to go away, and they could do things that later they could regret. So the Nazir is supposed to keep completely away from alcohol. Totally. Now how does that compare with the priesthood? Because we see that it is compared with the camp of divine presence, which is the priesthood. Now, the priests were not forbidden to drink. But they were forbidden to drink if they were going to be performing the ritual that day. They weren't supposed to be drinking. They could drink other times, but they could not drink when they were performing the ritual. The Nazir is supposed to be in the state as though he were a priest, getting ready to perform the ritual all the time. Now, there's a difference, too. Another difference is between the Nazir and the priest is that the priest and the king were supposed to keep their hair cut, trimmed nicely. They were supposed to be presentable. I mean, the laws are very clear about that. I mean, you have the whole law where Moshe shaved all of the Levites, remember that? Before he waved them. They were supposed to keep themselves with their hair cut, trimmed, and so on. The Nazir, on the other hand, had to let his hair grow wild. And, um, and he couldn't even trim it. Now, I'm not talking about like his beard and so on. It was the hair of his head. And you know this because over and over and over when we read the laws of Nazir, it talks about the circlet on his head. This isn't saying he's wearing a crown, but it's as though, spiritually, he's wearing a crown. It's as though there's this spiritual circle on his head that sets him apart. So he's going to be a he's going to be in this category that is different from other people. He has this wild hair. He has this where he can't drink wine and so on. And you would see in the, in the especially in the prophets, there could be whole families of Nazarenes. You know, there could be whole families of these people that they were born into it. And this was just the category. The, their family, their whole family lived this. And it was to bring them into this special place. And like I said, a person who took the vow for a period of time is going to be different from somebody who's born into it. A person who takes the vow for a period of time is trying to repent of something. Now, I found a really interesting article in, on the Internet about somebody who did this in the 20th century. And his name was David Cohen. He's actually Cohen. But he had had, he had been in the yeshiva and he had kind of dropped out, decided he was going to live a wild life and so on. And, um, and so during World War I, he was living in Switzerland. 
and Rav Abraham Yitzhak Cook was also in Switzerland at that time and he challenged David Cohen said you know you know so much about the Talmud you're able to study the Talmud with your students and so on and yet here you are and you're living this life that is completely contrary to the Torah and so he challenged him he, he said why are you making a fool of yourself and he challenged him and so David Cohen then did Shuva and he started studying with Rob Cook and became one of his avid students and went back to Israel with him and when he got to Israel he took the oath of Nazirut to become a Nazir to atone for his previous behavior so he never cut his hair he never drank wine and he was known as the Nazir this was what he was called interestingly and one of the things he did I mean he was still an avid student of Rob Cook's and he helped him put together his books and so on and so he became like a an assistant to him but it's very interesting that he was called the Nazir he's one of the very famous of our day and we kind of look at the laws concerning Nazir and you see all of these things about the temple and so you think well then if there's all of these ideas about the temple then it doesn't look as though it would be practical certainly not easy but it doesn't seem like it would be practical for a person to take this vow. We can see from this story of David Cohen that there was a reason. That this was the reason. It was for atoning for past sins. It was for overcoming something that maybe wouldn't be so easy for a person to overcome. And you needed that little bit of extra, that little boost to overcome those things that were really difficult in your character to abstain from. So you find yourself abstaining from things, wine, cutting your hair. It seems really drastic. It seems really extreme. But the but what happened was that the person would come into this very special relationship with Hashem through this extremity the extremity of his sins he would feel needed an extreme remedy so he would come into this very special place of relationship with Hashem through this vow and it's almost hard to explain because it's very spiritual and it's very subtle what happens with the person who makes this vow it's very this relationship is almost beyond explanation exactly what happens very mystical but on our level where we can see it we can see that it's sort of like when a person is an alcoholic and he can't drink anything at all because one drink is going to just send him on a binge he has to totally abstain totally uh, from everything well, this person has a problem with sensuality or some other sin, you know, probably in the sensual realm. And the idea is that his, pre- his appearance even is going to be contrary to that 
sensual one. His hair grows wild. He's not kept. He's not trimmed. He's not quaffed. And he um, he doesn't have that appearance anymore that's going to be considered attractive. And he's abstaining from things that are the normal elements of social socializing with other people. Elements that could get him in trouble. I mean, like drinking. Even with the eating of grapes. And it's really interesting that the word Nazir is the same word that is used for grapevines that are left unpruned during the Shemitah year. It's the same word. So it's this being left unpruned so that the person is being left to the care of Hashem. He's not being pruned or kept or anything by mankind. He's being cared for by Hashem. It's kind of an interesting parallel. But there's another kind of Nazir. And I want us to go over here and I want us to look at that. It's a little bit different. And there are a couple of examples of the Nazir. Who is Nazir from birth? And when a person would be Nazir from birth, this will be one time when a woman is going to take this vow of Nazirship. And it's not because she's trying to overcome anything or so on. It's because she has this child that's coming into the world that is a very special child. It's going to be a Nazir from birth. And it's to the point, it's actually to the, the, uh, wait a minute. It's actually to the point that <clears throat> even through the, uh, the nutrition from the mother that the baby wasn't to have any kind of great products from the very moment that she knew she was pregnant or going to become pregnant she was not supposed to eat any great products she was not supposed to drink any intoxicating um, liquid. She was not supposed to have any vinegar. Nothing like this. And she also was supposed to let her hair grow. And she was instructed that this child was never to have a razor touch his head. One of the most outstanding, of course, is Samson. There's another one, though, also Samuel. Both of these are very outstanding examples of the mother being told no razor shall come upon his head. And so with Samuel, this was this is a very interesting thing. Um, on the twenty eighth of ER is the is the yard site of Samuel, the prophet. His burial place is just outside of Jerusalem, um, in the neighborhood of Remote. And very interestingly, his yard site is also Yom Yerushalayim. It's Jerusalem Day. He's connected with Jerusalem. And at one point, in is is really kind of almost ironic, because there was a time in history when the little boy's first haircut when he would be three years old 
would be at the tomb of Samuel. They would take him to the tomb of Samuel and cut his hair for the first time. And it's kind of funny when you stop and you think about Samuel was never to have his hair cut at all. <laughs> and yet these little boys are having their hair cut for the first time at the tomb of Samuel. We don't do that now. It was changed. I'm not really sure exactly when that change happened, but now it's done at Merom, which is near the northern city of Spot. That they go to the um, the tomb of of um, Shimon Bar Yochai. So anyway, getting back to the idea about Samson. This is actually the Haftor, and that is in the book of Judges, chapter 13, 2 through 25. Now, Samson's family were of the tribe of Dan. His father's name was Manoah, and his wife, I mean, his mother's name is not given. But she had a visitation from an angel of the Lord, and the angel told her she had been barren all of her life, all of her years. And the angel told her that she was going to have a son. And it says, interestingly, he says that you're going to conceive a son. Consequently, beware now and do not drink wine or strong drink and do not eat anything unclean. Because you shall conceive and bear a son and a razor shall not come upon his head for a Nazarite to God shall the lad be from the womb and he will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines so this is the message that she got from the from the angel he was called forth before his soul came into the world at all for a very special mission to save the people of Israel from the Philistines and so as that he is specially dedicated to Hashem and this this is the difference between the person who takes the vow of a Nazir for a limited period of time because he needs to get past certain sin and the person who takes it who is a Nazir from birth it's not because of his sin it's because of his special dedication to Hashem so you can look at the person who took the vow to get past a certain type of sin that this is he's committing himself to this status of this special relationship with Hashem that actually puts him into the status comparable to that of the priest. And that's why we have these types of law in these categories. The Nazir steps into because of the status that he goes into spiritually. He goes into the status like it is comparable to the priest. This does not mean that he can do the functions of the priest doesn't mean that he can go into the Holy of Holies or any of those things he can't it's, it's a spiritual status and so it's that and that's what is meant when it talks about the circlet of Nazirship on his head this, this setting him aside in fact let me just go back here to this again a lot of times well let me just read this to you here. 
Rob, Rob Hirsch writes a very nice commentary on this. Because the whole idea about Nazir is so confusing to most people. Of what is that? And what was the purpose of it? And, and who were these people? Why would they do it? You know, it's good for us to just kind of put those questions to rest. So, first of all, the first thing that we notice about being the Nazir is all of these things from which he has to abstain. Hence, in view of the abstention from wine commanded to the Nazir, it would be most natural to interpret it as abstaining, as a person who is an abstainer. However, the fact that the Nazir is forbidden to partake not only of wine and grapes, but even of wine vinegar and of the seeds and skin of grapes, restrictions that do not seem to entail great personal sacrifice, already suggests that the concept of Nazir must be broader than that of mere abstinence. Moreover, the fact that the Nazir's physical contact with a dead body even if it happens without or against his will, completely invalidates the period he's already spent in fulfilling his Nazir vow, whereas his partaking of wine does not have this effect, should indicate that though abstention from wine is indeed one of the obligations of a Nazir, no less than avoiding physical contact with a dead body and letting his hair grow, does not have any me- not by any means constitute the whole definition of Nazir, or even the outstanding characteristic of one. Hence, Nazir is not primarily an abstainer. A thoughtful study of the verses show this, and will make it clear that even the three obligations mentioned in connection with the Nazir do not exhaust the concept of Nazirship. They are merely external manifestations advertising the fact that the person concerned has taken the Nazir vow. The concept of Nazirship is to be defined in terms of the statement in verse 8 that all the days of his Nazirship he is holy to God. And this is whether he is a Nazir from birth or whether he is a Nazir because he takes this vow. Defiling himself by contact with a dead body shaving his hair and partaking of great products are only logical consequences of this holiness. Indeed, in Amos 2.11 we see the Nazarim put in one class with prophets and the presence of both in Israel's midst is stressed as a sign of special divine favor. If we consider that the form Nazir is used to characterize vines left untended, left to grow on their own during the sabbatical and jubilee years, then we'll understand that in any event, Nazir does not refer to one who keeps away from something, but one from whom or from which others or something else is kept apart. The term Nazir denotes the royal circlet that marks its wearer as set apart from all others, therefore kept at a distance from them. In a similar vein, it's sort of like the word Kadosh, or holy, where it's set aside. In a similar vein, Nazir here 
denotes a discipline of life and aspiration which raises him who has voluntarily vowed to adopt it above and beyond his contemporaries in whose midst he lives and sets him the task of being completely holy to his God of belonging exclusively to God with all his being and with all his aspirations he seeks to draw around himself a nazer a circle as it were within which God alone is permitted the Hebrew term for such an act of drawing a circle around oneself for the sake of God meaning to go into isolation with and for God is lehazir let Hashem the one who has become isolated in this manner as a Nazir note however that this does not imply physical isolation a hermit's life in the wilderness but a mental and spiritual isolation with God even while one remains active in every other part of life so the Nazir was set apart he was different we really do see it very very clearly with Samuel that he was from the time he was a little boy he was hearing from God in a very special way now Samson on the other hand gives us some problems for one thing he's not supposed to be in contact with the dead and with Samson you see him killing the Philistines now this this is a problem but there is a reason there is a solution to the problem and this is it whenever the people would be traveling to go to the temple to bring their offerings their first fruits or so on and so forth there was a warning that they should not sleep like in a tent or under a roof just in case somebody died and they would be exposed to the dead so this whole thing about exposure to the dead has to do with being in a room where a person is dead under a roof in a room if the person is out in the open and there's there's a body there is not the same defilement unless he touches it so with Samson I mean you you know he used the jawbone of of a donkey and so on when he killed the Philistines so we would have to say that he would be careful that he himself did not touch and I know this is really stretching our minds here because this is this is a problem I struggled with if he's not supposed to be exposed to the dead how could he be killing the Philistines I mean like was he just hitting them and wounding them and then walking away and they die or you know I really struggled with this but that is the, that's the answer right there it, it was if he was exposed to the dead in a closed area with a roof if he was not in a closed area but was out in the open he did not have the same problem I mean even with Sam, Samuel remember when King Saul did not kill the king of king of God the king of the of Amalekites and Samuel killed him and you're going but wait then he's exposed to the dead well it was out in the open that's the answer 
it was out in the open. Because I know that if I've thought of it, probably some of you have thought of it. That this is a problem. What's going on here? And that's the answer. Now, I know that when it comes to the Kohanim in Israel, for instance, um, it's a problem. It is a problem like if a person who is a Kohen is going to fly on a plane. He has to check if the plane is carrying a body because sometimes the plane is transporting a body for burial he has to check because he cannot be on that plane if that body is on the plane I don't know if you're aware of that with the Kohenim when they have funeral for their family they have to get a plot on the outside on the, on, I mean on the edge by the fence of the cemetery so they can stand outside the cemetery they don't go inside they can't or they're exposed to the dead and so it's a real problem so this is you know I thought through all of these things because this idea of defilement with contact with the dead is a very big point and like it said that we the Nazir if he was exposed to the dead then he would have to shave his head and he would have to start all over now we know that Samson couldn't do that because if he shaved his head his strength went away so he couldn't have been doing that but he remained a Nazir right up until the very end Samson is a very interesting person and it makes you know you could kind of take a flying leap and you could try you know say a lot of other things but it's really important for us to just focus on there are places where the Torah the Tanakh tell us specifically that a person was a nausea but it's a mistake for us to jump to conclusions like all the kings were Nazarene or all the priests were Nazarene I've heard people say this and no no they were not they were not in fact the kings and the priests were supposed to cut their hair the kings and the priests partook of wine and so on it was an exception Nazir, Nazirut was an exception the prophets, so on they were not necessarily Nazarene and it's a mistake for people to take that flying leap and maybe you've heard it, I certainly have and it's a mistake because when people, sometimes they'll grab hold of an idea and they think, oh that's cool because the person was becoming really close to God so that must mean that all the people who had special jobs were all Nazarene no it is not true it was a very unusual calling and that's why a person who decides even now decides that for whatever was going on in his life that he needed this extreme thing he has to be really careful about doing it because it's difficult it's complicated it's it's kind of sticky even in our time because there's no temple and you can't really fulfill it so maybe you probably I would say you probably have questions because this is a very interesting subject and yeah women also were Nazarites they were also it was called Nazirah Nazira. 
Right. So does anybody have a question? If Nazir from birth is there a point where a person himself can choose not to be Nazir and if from birth is it until death. If a person is a Nazir from birth it's like the example that we have here of where the angels spoke to Samson's wife I mean Samson's mother I'm sorry and said that a razor shall not come upon his head and he's talking about for his whole life and like Samson Hannah was given the same message so he is supposed to be a Nazir from for his whole life till death he's supposed to be a Nazir so he never has this vow completed and because he's really not taking a vow it's almost like his soul comes into the world it's almost like his soul takes the vow before the before the throne of heaven before he even comes down into the into the fetus before he ever comes down to be a baby he's already taken the vow before Hashem and it's for his whole life And as you can see here, it's uh, the offering that the Nazir is supposed to bring to the temple when he completes his Nazirship is a lot. It was expensive. It was several animals. It was it was complicated. Uh, in addition to the hair that he would have to shave off and burn, that it was also all of this these animals, the matzo, and so on, that he had to bring. Including a, and you notice that it's also an ascent offering. And the ascent offering is that whole offering which indicates a total surrender of his entire life. So he's dedicating his whole life to Hashem from then on then also he would drink the wine as part of this too that he is now drinking the wine and that is similar to when we drink the Shemitah wine the wine from the Shemitah year the sabbatical year that there is a holiness to it and so there was a, a holiness to the drinking of the wine after he finished his 
thou of Nazir. It's a completely different thing of a Nazir from birth and a Nazir from just a period of time in his life to get past a certain kind of behavior. Totally different. So, anyway, does anyone else have a question or a comment? It's really an interesting subject. I mean, it just makes you really think about think about it. Most of the time when we were here about the Nazir, it was Samson or Samuel, so it was somebody from birth, and it's it's different when you think about the person who takes the vow. Does the person choose what period of time or is it standard? Um, no, a person doesn't it, it isn't standard. It's not standard at all because for for me, a time that it would take for me to do chuva and what period of time it would take for you to do chuva are definitely not going to be the same. So it wouldn't be standard. And sometimes a person could say, for this period of time, to this time in the calendar, I'm going to do this. And that's kind of interesting. And another thing that's kind of interesting about the whole idea about the hair is that, you know, it's almost like the hair is keeping a record. I mean, if you think about it, you, you think about the hair as growing as you're going through your life, and it's like it's keeping this record of the things that happen to you. And then the person would shave that hair and burn it as a sacrifice. It's like like finishing this period of his life and then he starts all new with it you know, he's gonna get new hair. And that was another point I thought was kind of interesting. Did you get my email about the question on the innocent wife? Oh, I'm sorry, I guess I didn't get that. Did you send it to my address at Noahide Nations or did you send it to my Yahoo address? Oh, let me just give you the mic. I uh, sent it to your Noahide Nations address. Uh, the question basically is in 528 it talks about the innocent wife will receive blessings since she will have seed. When it talks about having a, a easier birth labor and then it also talks about her child will be of fair skin which leads one to wonder does Hashem have preference of fair skinned people I find that uh, uh, I sort of negate that in my thinking and I'm wondering in my western way of thought something is not quite right here something I don't know about uh, could you set me straight on that well, let me just look at it for a moment. Now, I know that it does say that she is going to become pregnant and have a child. Um, what is what? What verse does it say he would have fair skin? Commentary on the verses of uh, five twenty-eight. If you read the commentary in the Parsha. Uh, that's where I saw that. I guess I don't have the same commentary because I don't see it 
just a second. Let me look at something else here. In fact, I don't see... And the answer is no. I mean, Hashem does not have a preference for people with fair skin over people with dark skin. I mean, that's... Uh, wait a minute. Okay, let me just look at this. See, here in the actual verse it says, But if the woman has not forfeited her purity and is still pure she will remain untouched by it in fact she will be blessed with offspring and that's all it says in the actual verse so I don't think that it's really talking it, it doesn't seem to me like it could possibly be talking about actual skin color because that your question would be very uh very pertinent there if that were and what if she were a dark skinned woman herself I mean genetically that would just be that would not fit uh, let me read you what it says on the commentary on the uh, the Hamash that I have uh, concerning verse 528 it says uh It says, and she shall bear seed, she will bear children more successfully. If she had suffered difficult labor, she will uh, give birth more easily. If her babies were dark-skinned, they will be fair. And in parentheses it says, Rashi. Or, God will give her a child to compensate for her ordeal. And uh, in parentheses it says, Ibn Ezra Rashbam. Well... Sometimes, I mean, the commentator is giving his opinion on what that means, and that's not really coming from even oral Torah. That that was that is the commentator's opinion on some of that. When you have like Rashi and so on, that can be his opinion about the whole thing of the dark skin and the fair because um, it's Hashem is not bigoted against dark skinned people I mean I mean that's just and unfortunately when we read commentaries like that we can get that wrong impression so we shouldn't get that impression because it's just not true and if she has dark skin herself then her children will be dark skinned I don't have the art scroll Humash the one I'm using is by Rob Hirsch I'm going to give you the microphone Miriam, when when someone is reading uh, from these commentaries like this, and it states Rashi or Rambam, uh, but if it comes from the Talmud, uh, the Talmud, it should uh, state the scripture and verse. Is that the way we uh, are to look at something like that? If it's not 
uh, stating where it comes from, that we're not to assume that it's from the Talmud, but it's from a uh, commentary uh, commentator's opinion. Is that is that is, are we looking at that right? And then that way, if we assume that uh, Rashi is saying something, that it's not, it cannot necessarily be Talmud. Well, Rashi is a major commentator in the Gemara, so you know the thing is, is you have the Mishnah which is the oral Torah. Rashi is commenting on the oral Torah. But here, where you're having commentary on the actual Torah Parsha, he's commenting on the Parsha itself. And so, that idea of the fair skin, dark skin, so on and so forth, I'm taking a flying leap here, and I'm going to say that was his opinion. And sometimes people in previous centuries had certain ideas in certain countries, had certain ideas about things, about beauty, about th- and you'll see some of those in those opinions. And they're not necessarily, you know, that's not oral Torah, that's opinion. And so, I know it can get confusing, but there has to be some separation there between opinion and the actual oral Torah. Now, one place that you see that a little bit it can be even more confusing is like in Song of Songs, where she says, I'm dark-skinned. This is coming from the Tanakh. So, it's kind of, but even that is symbolic language. And I'm not really expert here enough to really comment on what exactly that symbolic language means. But, again, we shouldn't get the idea that Hashem likes white people more than dark people because it's just not true. There are examples of people trying to think. The Queen of Sheba is an example. I mean, she was considered very beautiful and she was black. You know, that's an example. And, um, so we shouldn't get we shouldn't get the idea that Hashem is in any way preferential of one race against another race. What Hashem looks at is our souls, and we come into the world in the body and with the skin color and with everything that we need in order to fulfill the purpose of our soul. And yes, you're right. There are Ethiopian Jews. There are many Ethiopian Jewish people who are absolutely beautiful, beautiful people. The girls are gorgeous girls. And so we shouldn't get this. It's a mistaken idea that Hashem prefers blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. I mean, this is like a Nazi idea. It's just not true. And in Israel, you will see people from all different... You'll see Jewish people who look Oriental, Chinese. You'll see Jewish people who look black. you see Jewish people who are Indian, from India. You'll see people who are from all these different places. Because as the Jewish people lived in the diaspora, they became looking like the people in those countries. I know one time I was in a, an Ulpan class and we had all these Russian people in the class. 
And this woman says, I was in the shuk, and I was so shocked. I saw these people from Ethiopia, and they were black. And I had to start laughing. I said, yeah, they're black because they came from Africa, and their people had been there for, you know, a couple thousand years. And in that period of time, they started looking like the people in that country. They sort of like you look like Russians. Well, they got very upset by that comment. They said, we do not. <laughs> they were really insulted that I said they look like Russians. But to me, they look like Russians. So this is what happens as people, the Jewish people, have lived in these different countries. I saw one time I went to a, a lecture there was a Chinese professor who was lecturing about the Jews of Kaifeng. And with him he had some of the people who were descendants of the Jews of Kaifeng. They look like Chinese. They are Chinese. But they were descended from the Jews of Kaifeng. The first Jews that went to Kaifeng didn't look like that. But their descendants did. So it's really no big deal. They're still, you know, descendants of the Jews of Kaifeng. So, it's just interesting when you look at all of this. So, we're going to talk about the Sota more next, uh, tomorrow night. We're going to talk about that more. Um... It gets a little bit a little bit confusing when we have different versions of the Chumash, too. You have Art Scroll and I have Rob Hirsch. So I apologize for that because he gave me a page number and I wasn't going to find it in mine. Oh, no. Just one moment, please. Okay, so thank you for joining me tonight. And it, are there any other questions? Okay, thank you, and have a wonderful evening, and I look forward to seeing you same time, same channel, tomorrow night.